0: everybody i'm sean reynolds from sportsnet joined by ken we from sportsnet together we are kenny and rennie and this is the kenny and rennie long form show that we haven't been able to get to as consistently this year ken as we have or as as we did in the first season of this show and covid may be putting us in a direction <laughs> where we'll be able to do it more consistently because we're heading closer and closer back into the homes i know i was spent the day picking up uh test kits from my kids schools and they're going to be we're going to be doing the home learning for an extra week here so we know we're heading in that direction but uh good to be getting back to this and an absolutely huge guest on the show today this is our great white whale ken this is our moby dick we've been chasing him down and harassing kevin bx for a long time now and i think that uh i i had dinner with him in montreal during the stanley cup final him and a number of sports net people it wasn't just he and i and i bugged him about not coming on the show and you and kevin have a relationship from your time covering him with the manitoba moose so he told me uh in true fashion <laughs> uh he mo- he wanted to make you earn it so i think you've earned it yeah. and you got yeah. yourself on the back uh but yeah i mean we'll get it we'll get into it with him right away but just maybe for you just to start out uh kind of what it meant to cover those early Moose teams that, that you know, you saw so much skill head through to such a powerhouse Vancouver team and where Kevin Bieksa fits in to all that.
1: Yeah, happy new year, Sean, to you and our, our, our listeners, for sure. Uh, interesting times, certainly uh, feeling good. Uh, Kevin's a, a great individual, uh, came in in some interesting circumstances on just an ATO tryout after his career uh, in college and uh, made a pretty big impression uh, you know in his in his full time season with the with the moose uh, one of the great human beings and one of the great personalities uh, you could tell back then that kevin was uh, was one of those articulate uh, intellectual guys but uh, also a guy who played the game uh, pretty 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 hard uh, he was easy to uh, he became a fan favorite pretty quickly uh, because of how hard that he played and always really smart guy to talk to. And it's been great to see him uh, spread his wings in the journalism career uh, coming onto this side of the fence. But those Moose teams were a lot of fun, so much talent and um, skill came through that, uh, that mix. And a lot of those guys that were a big part of that 2011 team uh, that made it all the way to game seven of the Stanley Cup final. Uh, I was in the building that night uh, when game seven was won by their opponent. And uh, Kevin was one of those guys who uh, spoke afterward. Uh, it was obviously that's a tough moment to go through for anyone, but uh, he handled himself with incredible professionalism, and and has continued to do that throughout his entire career. So it's great to have him on, and let's not hesitate. Let's get them right yeah, in
0: here. Let's bring them in. One of the interesting things, Kevin, as we bring them into the show. Kevin, it's great to see you. Uh, if you got a lamp that you could put on your face, <laughs> oh, yeah. it would help because no right kidding. now <laughs> <laughs> That's back some good backlighting that there. looked a little bit that that's some online stalking was happening there for a second. Uh
2: you know the problem uh, is, is it's such a nice day out here. It's like the perfect weather, like Winnipeg weather, but I'm in Ontario. That's the yeah. Only problem.
0: Yeah, so that's this that's, is, that's
2: that's what I found. The,
0: the perfect weather for me was when I was in Ontario as well. When I lived in Toronto for two years, but Kevin, I was saying before you got out here, you, you're the great white whale of this show. I told you that in the summertime, we've been trying to get you on the show for a so long time. get you, yeah. <laughs> Um, hey, we're just going to get right into it. Uh, someone asked, uh, we like to you know, have the fans be able to chime in when they do. You told me this story. Uh, I want to know, are you the inventor of the Superman punch in the NHL? And give me an idea of where that originated, because I know it didn't originate in the league. I think it originated not even on the ice. Give me an idea of how you added that to the repertoire.
2: Yeah. Well, maybe let me ask you the question first. Like what's the demographic for your audience before we start telling these stories? Like how, who am I tailoring Kevin, this to?
0: Kevin gets to tailor this to whoever he wants. You get to fly, you okay. get to fly free on the Kenny and Rennie show. So have at her, my man.
2: You know, what's is funny is uh, before I answer your question, Ben Sherrod, who played for the Jets for years. And I think it's pretty well known that him and I have trained together over the years and I've kind of tried to mentor him. I'm not taking full credit for how good he's turned out, but, uh, when he was playing for the Jets, I guess they were in Vegas and Forrest Griffin, they went to the UFC gym to, to tour and Forrest Griffin was there. And it, it was just after my one, I think it was the Radcoat Gouda Superman punch. And he said, who's that guy that just threw the Superman punch uh, on the ice? And then Ben obviously said, yeah, he's a, he's a buddy of mine that I train with. And he's like, that, that was pretty cool. So that, that was kind of my, my validation when Forrest Griffin was, uh, you know, seeing my punch and Dana White commented. But to answer your question, guys, um, first of all, I can't believe I'm finally on. We've been kind <laughs> of going, going back and forth here for uh, it seems like a couple years. Uh, it's been a long you.
0: courtship. It's a long and, courtship, yeah.
2: And then with, with Rennie, we, we hung out during the Stanley Cup finals a little bit, and I realized, well, this guy's not that bad. Maybe I will come on and <laughs> show. I remember, like, uh, we were drinking a lot of orange wine the one night, and and I, like, I vaguely remember a story of you falling off a bridge or something like that. Uh, and there, I don't know if that was a dream no or not.
0: It's a true a real story. story. Yeah, it's a real story. Yeah, it's true. And he hasn't yeah, even shared
1: that one on the show. We'll have to be able no, to that, that one for I'll a I'll time. I'll have to bust out.
0: That's my hey. Since we're talking superheroes, that's my journalism superhero origin story. I was just uh, a Jimmy Olsen kind of character before before falling off that bridge. I I emerged the journalist I am today, Kevin.
2: Well there's a great story weaver if you're ever looking to kill some time. But uh he's
0: told the, me it's wild. The,
2: the, the Superman punch kind of started um out of I don't know self-preservation. It was it was a college fight. It was a fight in a parking lot sticking up for a buddy on my hockey team who got punched in a in a house party and uh, somehow ended up squaring off with this 300-pound rugby guy. And, you know, <laughs> odds odds were probably against me. I don't even think my buddies were betting on me. But uh, <laughs> we squared off, and, and the first Superman punch, uh, you know, kind of presented itself, and it landed. It was, it was probably the best one of, of my career. And then, you know, like I always – I think I was a little bit ahead of my time as far as training for fighting in hockey. I don't think a lot of guys trained for fighting. I think it was more of a reactionary thing. And I kind of like as my career got going, obviously it was a big part of my game and I, I wasn't considered a fighter, but I fought once in a while. I fought because first of all, I enjoyed it. Second of all, it created room for me. Third of all, it stuck up for teammates and just added another element to my game. So I started thinking, you know, when I, during my training, like implementing some sort of offensive attack right off the bat. And Rick Ripon was probably the inspiration because he used to throw a lot of punches coming into fights and um i remember just sitting back and watching. even though he was my peer and he was a couple years younger than me on, and on my team i'm watching how good of a fighter he is and how successful he is i'm like i gotta get that into my arsenal somehow so i kind of took it to the next level a lot of practice a lot of uh, picturing dion phaneuf in my garage in the summer <laughs> while i'm <laughs> while i'm practicing it it's funny the things that you do eh, to, to get yourself ready but uh I, I threw it probably 15 times in my career and obviously there's a couple more that landed than others
1: Obviously, I was there early in your career, Kevin. I it always felt like you were more engaged when you – had. You, you seemed like to be one of those guys who needed to fight every certain amount of games in order to be at your peak. Is that how you viewed it as well? And did you feel like you were more on edge when that element was was happening a with a little bit more regularity, especially maybe early on in your career?
2: Yeah, well – I'll start maybe like earlier in my crew playing for the Manitoba Moose and, and Randy Carlisle. Um, I fought, I think on record, I fought 14 times that season during the lockout and I probably actually fought more. Some of those didn't turn out to actual five-minute fights, but uh, Randy used to call me into his office in, in the MTS center when it was brand new every probably like 10 days if I didn't have a fight and I'd come in, I'd sit down, and after a while I, I picked up on it and he'd say, when was your last fight? And after the first couple Subtle. meetings, after the first couple of meetings, I did my homework, and I'd be like, 12 days, Randy." And he goes, "Yeah, you're due." And I, like, okay, <laughs> I, I get the message. You know, young guy just trying to make it and and play as many games as I could, and willing to listen to any anything. And then as my career went on, obviously, I didn't I didn't count the days in between, but I, I was aware. I was aware. Like I usually like to get a fight off in either preseason or right at the start of the season, and then strategically, like every month, if I go a while without a fight, I'd look at the calendar, and I'm like, okay, road trip coming up. Who do the Jets have? Jets have Buffalo. They have, you know, Wheeler. They got Peluso. Oh, Peluso's out of my kind of league a little bit. Maybe Bufflin. Oh, he might not fight me. And I, I kind of go through it a bit. Okay, okay, probably not going to get a fight in Winnipeg. Who do we play the next night? Next night we play mm-hmm. Minnesota. Okay, maybe Marcus Felino. So I started to kind of look at the schedule a little bit because, again, I just I, I enjoyed fighting, and it, was, it helped my
0: game out. So you'd look ahead at what was coming. You played in the league, Kevin, at a time that's where... That's basically what know, I just said, Reddy. Yeah. That, that's, that's, <laughs> I'm, I'm building. I'm building off what you say. It's called storytelling, Give Kevin. him some time. Oh, okay. Give him some time. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you looked ahead to your fights. And it, what I'm trying to get is in that time, you played in the league at a time where to be a tough guy, you had to be tough. Like it was, the, the league was a tough league. And a lot of times, to be tough, you had to be really big. Now you're not a small guy, but you're not big in terms of how the league was back in those days and some of the guys who fought back then were absolute killers you talked talked about Paluso maybe being out of your league but we hear these stories later on guys like George LaRock talked about like how they'd have trouble sleeping the night before fights and how it kind of like the mentality of going into those fights you were it was almost like you were fighting for your life you feared up until that moment then you'd get the rush and you'd get through it and it felt good afterwards until you started having to build up to the next fight did you have any of that did you have any of that anxiety leading up to fights or, or you say that you enjoyed it. Was it just all enjoyment from day one?
2: Well, it's a good question. I mean, it was a really long question, but I, I think I get the, <laughs> the gist of it. Um,
0: you better <laughs> to, to an-
2: answer your question uh, a few different ways. First of all, I, not every fight I had was looking ahead. Some of them were, well, a lot of them were reactionary, right. To, to what happened in the game. Um Again, like, I wasn't considered a fighter. Like, I once I I talked about Randy Carlisle, once I got to the NHL, like, my first full season, I had 42 points, right? So, for a defenseman, that's a lot. So, after that, I was able to kind of pick my spots a little bit more. I was playing top minutes. So, my job wasn't to fight. So, I don't think I had the same stresses and anxieties as, I just mentioned, a Mike Peluso or a George Larocque or a Darcy Hortuchuk. Or even a Rick Ripon, who you know had to fight quite a bit, like I didn't have those stresses because I didn't have to fight. If, if it didn't turn out that night, it didn't matter, right? I was still going to make my impact on the game offensively, defensively, any, any other way. So uh, I'm not taken away from from the anxieties of, of the job, but I, I wouldn't say I had a ton of it just because for, for that reason, right It was never It was never like I'm looking at the game I'm like, I have to fight tonight. There, there was a couple situations where i knew going into a a game i remember once in anaheim oh randy carlisle again shocker but uh pulled me (laughs) in and said i wasn't going to be playing or something like that like basically a little bit of a threat and i went out and i fought kyle clifford that night i had a couple of those throughout my career but i didn't have them every night
1: Obviously, one of the other famous fights from the Winnipeg days uh, you've had to talk about a lot about the Feder Fedorov incident. How did you guys keep it a secret? Because I can remember uh, the Moose Yearling Foundation dinner. I think was very shortly after that, and Feder Fedorov was at our table, and I, I was I asked, "Well, what happened?" And he gave me some kind of BS story. Uh, I'm more interested in how how you were able to keep it kind of on the down low, considering Winnipeg's such a small place, and you know where where the where the location was. Uh, was a place where a lot of people attended, I guess.
2: Especially you, Weber. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's the ultimate hockey story for that reason, because it was it was a team out galvanizing bonding after a loss that eliminated the team from the playoffs that year, and, and just something that happened out of nothing. But nothing major happened that, that instigated the fight. It just It just happened, right, like it does sometimes. And following the fight, the next day, I remember, was a day off. And, um, obviously management found out about it and they made their phone calls and got the story from us. But the next practice day we had Dallas Eakins was the captain and he called a meeting before practice and Dally said, okay, obviously everybody knows that, uh, Kevin and Fetter got into a fight. Um, Federer fell down the stairs, Kevin, you hit your head, everybody good break. And we kind of <laughs> just went off <laughs> on our separate ways. And when the media comes in, you just, you know, there's no need to mention it because, there's just nothing there. And uh, I think I ended up walking by Fetters stall after and just kind of like smiled and like shook his hand. And like, I think we went out for dinner with Koltsov like a few nights later. It was just, it was typical hockey stuff after all it was over no hard feelings, kind of just a fun, fun experience for more for me than him. But it was just <laughs> <laughs> one of those things that you don't hold grudges about, you
0: know, Kevin, when players go into the hockey hall of fame, there's always the question of what Jersey would they wear? What hat would they wear? You're so well known as a Vancouver Canuck, saw your time uh, when you were down in Anaheim, but so many people here, your, your time with the Manitoba Moose resonated with them. Do you, as a pro hockey player who goes on to a good career like you had, do you kind of park the AHL stuff in, in the back of your mind, or do you kind of wear that tattoo of the Manitoba Moose on your heart wherever you go? So my
2: my gym, at, I'm at my cottage right now in northern Ontario. My gym in, in the garage is basically, throughout my career, I, I worked out at my own gym in the summers. I always train in my own place, by myself, no training partners. Obviously, when I went to camp, I'd train with the Siddines or whoever was there early. But in my gym right now, it's my whole garage, like a triple garage that's it's all a gym. So everybody in my family exercises, works out. I have a ton of machines and, and ellipticals and treadmills and all that stuff. I still have my Manitoba Moose jersey front and center. So I think that kind of answers your question. What Manitoba meant to me, it it gave me an opportunity to prove myself that I could play pro hockey because I came out of college and I had an agent or a family advisor, and and you know since I got after my first year of getting drafted in college, he didn't return my calls for three years, my last three years. So I went into my senior year at the end of the year, and I had no communication, nothing set up afterwards. Yeah, sure, I was drafted by Vancouver but I hadn't even heard of them, you know, from them in a couple of years. The guy who drafted mm-hmm. me was fired. So when I switched agents to Kurt Overhart, who's turned into a really good friend and a mentor, uh, he got me to Manitoba on an ATO like Weaver you mentioned. And basically I had to prove that I could even play in the HL, let alone the NHL. And Manitoba gave me my first chance, that four game stint where I ended up getting into a fight with a teammate. And, no, you know, Brian Burke happened to be in charge of Vancouver and, <laughs> I was lucky that he kind of liked that kind of thing. I was lucky that Zinger and, and Stan Smeal and, you know, they didn't pull the plug on me and they let me come back to camp and, and the next year and, and work my way onto the team. So very grateful for my years in Manitoba. And I don't know, that's a that's a tough question, what which jersey I would wear, but Manitoba would certainly be in consideration.
1: Now, what do you remember about that phone call with Berkey afterward? I mean, I know you've spoken about it in a number of different places, including uh, on the University of Regina uh, thing that you guys did at my alma mater, uh, I think, that was last year, I guess. Uh...
2: So, you know, what's great about Berkey is um, Berkey's got a lot of stories and, and every time you hear them, they change a little bit, right? <laughs> so I, I love Berkey. I spent so much time with him, especially like the last couple of years working playoffs with him. We'd always go out for a drink afterwards at his moxies down the street. And I spent a lot of time with Berkey and I've heard his version of the story a million times. And every time it's just a little bit different. And I remember like, He'll tell the story and like somebody like David Amber or Elliot will be there and they'll just kind of look at me like, that really happened? I'm like, no, maybe not like that. <laughs> but, but I never actually talked to Berkey. That's the problem or that's oh. the thing. Um, I talked to Steve Tambellini. He called me. Zinger called me, who was the GM of the Moose at the time. And then Stan Smeal called me, who was the head coach of the Moose at the time. But it never actually got up to Berkey. But Berkey obviously had some impact.
0: I like asking this question because I'm surprised by it often. I I asked Mark Shifley this question when he kind of got to the stage that he thought, you know what, I could actually make the NHL. He told me he was 17 years old and two months into his first OHL season before he was like, you know what, maybe I could actually pull this off. Your path, like you said, you know, you kind of got drafted and then got forgotten for a little bit. At what point did you kind of think I've got a shot at making this? And did you feel like you lost it for a while and and had to reclaim it?
2: Well, it wasn't seventeen. Uh, not not even not even close to that. I thinking about seventeen. At seventeen years old, I think I just got sent down from Tier Two Junior A to, to Junior B because I was healthy scratched every four games. I started off as a sixteen year old on the number one power play making the team and then worked my way all the way down the lineup until I was out. So definitely not at 17. I, I needed the three years of tier two junior a in Ontario to, to develop and grow. And then I needed the four years of college to, to really grow and to mature and to hit the gym. And, you know, off ice was always kind of my uh, leveling of, of the playing field where I could get my edge. I always felt like I was, I was stronger and faster than everyone else because I just think I put more time in it than, than other people. So um, even even, you know, playing in, in the in AHL that lockout year, it was a really good league, you know, Spetza and you know, Ray Emery, and Chris ne- like there is every team had guys that ended up being, you know, big impact players in the NHL for the next ten years. Ryan Miller uh were, were in that league. I had a really good season. I had, you know, Nolan Baumgartner kind of mentoring me on defense and I kind of followed his lead and we had a good team, and Kes and I kind of came on to our own. And then the following year, I went to training camp, and feeling feeling good about myself, just had a full year. Randy Carlisle's the coach, survived him. Going into camp, everything's great. And then second day of training camp in Whistler, high ankle sprain. Battling another guy in, in, uh, during a drill, high ankle sprain. So I leave practice, and I've never had a high ankle sprain before. Worst injury I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. Because it's basically your ligament stretches, But it never heals or never goes back. You basically just have to wait for everything to just work, like strengthen around it so that it works again. So, you know, I I missed the rest of camp. I missed all preseason. And they're just sitting around like, when are you going to be ready? And I'm like, I don't know. So after two and a half months, they're like, okay, well, you got to go home. Like you can't just hang out here, first of all. And uh, so you're going to go back to your your home in, in Grimsby. And then we want you to go to Manitoba and do all your rehabbing there. And so that, that was devastating for me. I went home and I think my wife was maybe my fiance at that time. We packed our car and we drove out to Winnipeg and she still says it was the most miserable she's ever seen me before in my life. And I, and I said to her, listen, like I, I had my opportunity. I thought that was the end. I thought that was my last chance. I was never going to get another shot. You know, I was kind of in my prime and then an injury takes me out of it. So that, that was a tough pill to swallow.
1: And then, too, to to make matters worse, Kevin. Remember, Av got on your case after that game against the Toronto Marlies, right? It was very early yeah. on your return. All I've heard about is how great Bieksa was last year. I haven't seen it yet, and I was I got out of that scrum. I am like, oh boy, that, that, I didn't I didn't see that one coming. Um, but then he became a really he had a really big impact on your career as you kind of went along.
2: Good old AV, right? I, I went. <laughs> oh, I went up to his room after that Weaver, because he said it. He said the exact same thing in the dressing room in front of my teammates, and I kind of didn't even really like. I didn't even really like acknowledge it too much because what happened was I took a penalty. Somebody like was digging at Wade Flaherty, our goalie, after the whistle, and I came and I took a penalty on the guy, sticking up for my goalie. Didn't think twice about like my previous coach loved that kind of stuff, right? And then, uh, like, they score on the power play. But it was, like, to make it 1-1, but it ended up being, like, a 6-5 game. So, like, it didn't really factor into the game. And then after the game in the dressing room with the teammates, he's ripping me. Like, it's a selfish play and blah, blah, blah. Then he rips me in the media. And I'm like, okay, you can rip me in front of my teammates. That's fine. But, like, what are you doing in the media? So, I went up to his room at the hotel, and he answers the door in a tank top in his white underwear and I'm like what is this like I, I've been asking the guy all day can I come talk to you can I come talk to you and finally he lets me up there and I'm like oh my god so we sit. I sit on the couch he sits in the chair he's still on his like tank top and everything and I go like what what's your problem with me like what why are you ripping me and he goes oh I don't even know what I say I didn't even remember that media scrum and blah
1: blah blah but
2: he ended up being probably one of the best head coaches I, I ever had um, but he obviously had his ways of trying to motivate guys
0: I find it so fascinating the coaches that you were able to go through when you were with Manitoba. You know Dallas Eakins in the league right now, Randy Carlisle, uh, you know phenomenal coach for years. Av, and then even when you get to guys like Zinger, who I'm sure you've got a phenomenal relationship with, and Mark Chipman, who is so hands on. The the quality uh, and the uh, the top shelf nature of the people that they had in that organization. Does it surprise you that you ran into that many people? in the at the ahl level of hockey
2: yeah well i mean i didn't have any other experience with any other organizations but I, I think as my career progressed and i moved a little bit i realized how how fortunate and lucky i was to be around such quality people and, and you see them all you know chipper and zinger and, and those guys you mentioned making such an impact for so long and now the nhl they did that in, in the ahl and treated us all like NHL players back when we were making 35,000 a year. You know, I was eating at Subway every day because that's all I could really <laughs> afford for my uh, rent at Evergreen. We call it Trump Towers, but it was really Evergreen Towers. And <laughs> I had my TV on a, on a box and I slept on an air mattress the whole lockout year with Tom Mills Uh uh-huh. But you know, they, they treated us, we, we get to the rink and, and they would treat us like NHL players from the start and, and spared no expense. And, very, very appreciative of those guys. Those are, those are quality people. And and as you're around this game longer and longer, you realize they're, they're not so common. There's very few people like, like Zinger and Chipper.
1: You touched on it, Kevin, about needing the time at the college level. I mean, the fact that it wasn't handed to you, I mean, you weren't a first round draft pick. You had to kind of earn everything that you got at every level. I mean, what impact did that have uh, on your career and maybe your appreciation for kind of living in the moment when you were going through you know, the ups and downs of an NHL career. There were a lot of ups, obviously, but it can be tough yeah. and it can be a grind at times.
2: Yeah, I, I think you just learn a lot about yourself and, and perseverance. And and for me, I was I was a fifth rounder, so that's not very high and, and basically had to fight and scratch and claw to get everything that I I got. And and just having that chip on your shoulder, that could do so much for you in, in life and anything. Right. Always having that chip on your shoulder and never being satisfied and being hungry and and, and I coach high school hockey now, my son's team and I run an academy and it's it's very difficult for me when I see these kids that don't have a chip on their shoulder and it's it's not their fault, right? It's their upbringing, They're you know they have great parents, I have great parents, but they have, you know, great parents that live together and they have comfortable lifestyles and they fly to Hawaii on their vacations and that's certainly not their fault. They're products of their of their environment, but when they get on the ice they just don't have that chip on their shoulder that I had and it's just hard. It's it's you know it's hard to see kids that don't want to play the game that way. But I, I kind of had to. Like that's I had to do that if I wanted to be successful, and it, it really helped me. It still helped me to this day to have that chip on your shoulder. Controlling it's another thing, but it's uh what is it? It's better to paint stripes on a zebra than tame a cheetah or something like that.
0: <laughs> I've never heard that thing before. You yeah, just yeah something like that. <laughs> copyright, um, that. Copyright that. Copyright that. Yeah. <laughs> A couple of different ways i want to go with that but uh, I, the, the hockey in california your son coming up that so you come out of small town ontario you fight your way into the league like that i went and i was looking at the numbers of players who had come from certain number of states you know what states are producing hockey players and i was surprised to see how many hockey players are coming out of california i wanted to get your take because you're Now a bit of a power broker there. Your son was at the first game of the year that we did hockey night. Uh, It was a Wednesday night hockey. We showed him on camera there during the game, uh, Jets and uh, uh, Anaheim game. Um, But you coach that team. What's it like coaching kids in California outside the idea of them not having the chip on their shoulder? What do they do so well there?
2: Well, I mean, there's there's not every kid is, is 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 fortunate in California. There's you know it's it's a big state. There's as many people in California than in all of Canada. So there's a vast variety of different uh, families and, and, and kids. And we have scholarship funds. And we uh, we you know some kids can't afford to play hockey, especially out in California where ice is on average five hundred dollars an hour. So if you're looking at just kind of what I've learned, and and it's taken a while for California hockey to get going because you know, like anything you need, you need grassroots programs and you need quality coaching and you need, you know, most times you need ex NHL or ex pro hockey players or ex pro coaches that stay around and start coaching their sons. And, 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 you know, that kind of ensures that there's some sort of quality in the coaching and that kind of just, you know, snowballs from there. So, you know, Brian Allen's coaching uh, there now, and there's, there's a bunch of guys, Jimmy Roy's still kind of lurking around and he comes out uh, and, and helps coach in the academy world uh, once in a while so you got a lot of ex-players you know Scott Niedemeyer coach for years when his kids were playing team Solani he helped coach and I think that's where like the quality of coaching is starting to pick up a little bit so got a ways to go to catch the Minnesotas and the Bostons but you know if you look at the east coast in the U.S. really tough players like the whole east coast plays very aggressive Minnesota is very very skilled but their knock or sorry their knock is always that they're soft the players a little bit on the softer side and then California, I think you have a little bit of a mix. You have, I think, a little bit of the toughness of the East Coast, maybe not as much. And you got probably, you know, a little bit of skill, but not as much as Minnesota. So you're kind of like in the middle there, which is not a bad place to be.
1: Speaking of the of the hockey side, I mean, Kevin, you had a pretty cool experience with the hometown hockey and then also being honoured uh, in your hometown. Uh, what was that like to kind of see and kind of turn back the clock a little bit, if you will, and, and walk down memory lane there?
2: So during my career, I, I was never a guy that – thought about what i accomplished like even after the stanley cup run i never i don't think even one night i sat around and thought wow like that was a great season wow almost won. i was always like tunnel vision like what's next like don't like well i'll I'll think about my career after i'm done like i'll you know i'll appreciate everything later and you know and then you get to realize this is just the way you are and, and you never actually sit back and reflect so, well you know, it's funny when I had that weekend and uh, I knew it was coming up in Grimsby, I, I actually called my dad who lives in Vancouver and I hadn't seen him in a year and a half because of COVID. And I said, you're flying into, I'm flying you into Toronto and, and we're going to do this weekend together because I think it's important that you're beside me. If we're doing hometown hockey and we're talking about Grimsby, well, you're the one that moved us there. Like you're the one that knows more than anybody. Why, why did you choose Grimsby? So it was, it was great. It was almost like I told my wife, it felt like a retirement uh ceremony for me because it was a little bit of not closure but it was finally an opportunity for me to reflect with my dad right beside me my one brother who lives in grimsby i just wish my other brother was there who lives in kelowna but he obviously couldn't get out and i wish my wife and kids were there too but you know i can't have it all but uh i had my dad beside me went back to grimsby went to a peach king game which was awesome a lot of family my mom lives there she was there the whole time and it was a great weekend they they do such a good job And uh, Ron's the best, as we all know. Ron was great every time he speaks; he's he's amazing.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up your dad because I had some quick conversations with you in the summer. Uh, when you talk about having that edge, that chip on your shoulder, that toughness that you kind of get instilled, uh, a lot of that comes from your dad who I, uh, you know, that's the what I took from our conversation, mm-hmm. who I think you said you still don't think you could take to this day. Uh, <laughs> give me an idea how he has affected uh, your life, the person you are and the way you play the game
2: well my dad is uh he was a steel worker for 25 years then he got into the unions and then he worked out on the oil rigs during the strike and now he's you know huge advocate for for mental health he's the president of a steel workers uh, union in in british columbia like very very uh well-rounded individual obviously comes from from you know the streets of hamilton and, and you know tough you know, rode a motorcycle Harley and kind of hung around that crowd for a bit until he kind of figured out that's probably not the right decision long term. So, but like big into hu- human rights and kind of uh, started the return to right uh, program in in Canada and, um, you know, represents injured workers. I could go on about my dad, but he's a very gentle guy with a, with a mean streak. So I've learned a lot, I think, over the years and watching him, like how to balance it. So, you know, being a guy who you, you don't want to fight in a in a hockey fight or a street fight, but also being somebody that you know compassionate. That you know, if you're you're struggling with something, you can pull them aside and, and talk to. You. I've always kind of prided myself on being both those things, and I think that probably comes from my dad because my mom's crazy and she's uh, she's probably the toughest PX. I don't I don't mention her because it's common knowledge that she would she would rip all our heads off in, in a real fight. But I think uh, the the mix of toughness and, and compassion comes from my dad for sure yeah
1: no easy segue but I think you did the best we could there Kevin obviously you mentioned Rick Rippen mm-hmm. earlier on um, I mean that that day in August of 2011 is ingrained in kind of both of our minds pretty similarly but uh, for you what's been like to see the legacy that is created out of that and you touched on the mental health and what's being done in Rick's honor um, since that time which is crazy to think now that's it been you know almost coming on 11 years and change
2: Yeah, well, it's uh, a lot's been done and I'm kind of I'm pretty proud of of, it's taken a lot of people to to get to this point. But what's happened from his death? Because very easily nothing could have happened and nothing could have changed. And it could have just been a a sad story that nobody really wanted to talk about or do anything about. But we relaunched a website, mindcheck.ca right after in in January. And um, from what I've the feedback that I got, it saved hundreds of people's lives in British Columbia which was amazing. And then when I got traded to Anaheim, I kind of handed over the reins to Alex Burroughs and he took over admirably after that. And then Foundry BC ended up stepping in and acquiring them. So that's one area that we're pretty proud of. And then uh, hockey talks is another thing. That's an NHL initiative that was started by the Vancouver Canucks. And I think all the Canadian teams for sure, I think there's 13 or 15 NHL teams now that recognize that were you know, a certain month of the season, they'll recognize a home game and have, you know, uh, mental health at the forefront of that game and the conversation. That's another thing. Um, we're actually, I just was talking with Wes Rip and Rick's brother today and uh, we're planning on going to Vancouver for, uh, I think it's the 10 year anniversary on, uh, in a couple of weeks actually to, to drop the puck for their hockey talks uh, day. So I know he's done a lot with the Ricky Rip foundation and, going around to schools and speaking to a lot of kids. Because that was kind of the one thing that Rick um, articulated to me, was he really wanted to help kids that were suffering from the same thing. I know a lot of adults struggle from mental illness, but I think kids were kind of at his focus where, because he was a young kid, I think when he started with his issues, 16 years old. And I think he just really had a soft spot for, for kids and he would have been a great dad. But uh, going, going around the schools and speaking with children was, was kind of like the, the, the way he wanted to impact the world. And so I, I still do that as much as I can. And uh, there's a lot of great people in the Canucks organization. There's a lot of great people in the Winnipeg Jets organization that have honored Rick's legacy and, and continue. Project 11 has done a great job. And uh, so pretty proud of both organizations for keeping his legacy going and strong.
0: Kevin, you've brought up uh, the names of Ryan Kessler, Alex Burroughs, Rick Rip, and a lot of the guys that you spoke I didn't bring with. up Kessler. Oh, yeah, yeah you did. did. You brought oh, it yeah, up I earlier. <laughs> I wrote it down when you did to make sure. Um, I want to get an idea. Nice uh, <laughs> I remember that uh, what is it, the 03 um, Flames team that goes to the cup. A whole bunch of them were in St. John's together and they all kind of came up and they they one of the reasons given why that team was kind of you know, didn't have the highest names on it, but they they did so well is because of the kind of kinship that they'd created with each other down on the farm and brought up. Give me an idea of the bond that's created between, you know, th- those three players and you and some of the other guys who spent time in Manitoba and kind of came to the, the Canucks as a block of players.
2: Well, I, I don't think you can fake chemistry. I, I don't think it's something where you can just sit guys down and say, you guys have to have chemistry. You have to get along. I think it's just something that happens first of all, it happens off ice and it also happens on ice. So all three of us in the minors together struggling, like I mentioned, making, well, Kess obviously signed for a nice chunk of money for being a first rounder, but, you know, Burr starting in the East Coast League and myself on on an ATO, we were, we were playing hockey basically for the love of the game with a dream to make it to the NHL and struggling through the minors and, um, you know, just going through that hardship, I think galvanizes you. And then Coming up together, uh, me and Rick Rippon were actually called up together to play our first NHL game. Uh, I played my first game. He played his first game the following night. And then Rick got hurt like a a week and a half in. And Alex Burrows got called up to play his uh, first NHL game because of that. So, you know, like another thing that kind of galvanized Burr and I, and uh, we we hung out every single day and night together because we're living in the Sutton place together, playing in the NHL for the first time. It was, you know... We felt like rock stars. Um, And then off the ice, like all the workouts and the the really hard training exercises and the skates and, and, you know, like your wives becoming friends and then having kids at the same time. And all that stuff kind of led up to the 2011 playoff run where it all came together and we made the finals. and, And a lot of it, that season, a big part of it just had to do with how close we were, like all the adversity that we went through. Just didn't seem like a big deal because we were we were so close and, and not close in the way like you're my best friend like we always get along like I I would try to fight Burr in practice sometimes I'd try to fight Kess Burr with two hand Kess in the ankles we'd have like two weeks stints where Kess wouldn't talk to us because we were making fun of him you know going onto the ice hobbling so it certainly wasn't like a perfect relationship but it was one that we we were really close and. At the end of the day, we had each other's back. And then, you know, you add the Sedins to that, which are the two most amazing people ever. And you have Luongo, who is the ultimate competitor. And then you you bring in super nice guys like Dan Hamus and Manny Mahalter and Alex Adler. It was just like a perfect storm uh, that all happened in 2011. But it, the start of it was me, Kessenberg, for sure.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no doubt about that Uh even too I mean I mentioned game seven earlier Kevin but I was also at game two that year I mean they had just made the Jets announcement that the NHL was coming back so for me I paid my own way to go to game two because I wanted to see a Stanley Cup final at the highest level and lo and behold who scores the game winner in game two Alexander Burroughs I mean what was it like to be in that building and to sort of see that moment I mean I, I saw the after effects and burr in the middle of his third scrum he sees me and he goes weber what are you doing here like right he's the guy just scored the biggest goal of his life but you guys always sort of oh never forgot where you came from and you always have that appreciation but what was it like to sort of see that the pinnacle moment uh, in a stanley cup final for like you said a guy who is basically a week or two away from potentially quitting hockey in the east coast league now all of a sudden he scores the game winner in the stanley cup final
2: I, I've said to so many kids over the years, I go, "Do you want to? Do you want to know what like a good story is, or a good person to look up to? That if you want to make it, look at Alex Burrows. Go like familiarize yourself with Alex Burrows' story, where he came from, what he had to do to make it to the NHL. Because I think the way Burr got there is so admirable, and uh, he, he's literally earned every piece of." You know hockey every dollar he's made he's earned everything and, and the good old-fashioned hard way burr is an amazing teammate he's an amazing person he's a prick to play against and he's even a prick to be on your team sometimes but he i have so much respect for what he's he's accomplished with you know everything he was given and you know that goal in overtime it was off the opening faceoff, too i remember right like tim thomas came out burr wrapped it Luongo chirped Thomas in the uh, media about how uh, he would never be that far out of his crease <laughs> and that was a that probably wasn't the right thing to do Lou but uh, uh, no but Burr, Burr was amazing that whole playoff run Burr scored 30 goals I don't know how many seasons it felt like every season he scored 30 once he got with the twins and uh, not not meant to be like a chirp by any means but like Burr's probably not supposed to be scoring 30 goals if you just kind of look at like the way, the way his skill set is and everything, he got the most out of everything he had because he's just the ultimate, he's very, very smart, very, very intelligent hockey player. Great hands, great instincts, great teammate, and he got the most out of everything that he, uh, he was given.
0: I know, Kevin, you say that you didn't dwell on things very much and you didn't look back much um, throughout your career, but th- did the 2011 finals haunt you?
2: uh no not not anymore like i don't know if they ever haunted me um i think once once it was over you're kind of you're you're pretty upset because you're like man i was so close like first of all when it's first over guys to be honest with you you're you're a little bit relieved you're like i'm so tired i'm so beat up i'm so mentally exhausted and i'm just glad it's all over and and then like a couple days later you're like oh shit like we were so close we were so close and then after that, you're like, okay, like, we got most guys coming back. Like, we'll probably get back there again. And then as time goes on, you just – you realize that it's it's so hard to come by. And uh, But, no, like, I, I think that run – like, obviously, I always kind of relate it to, like, climbing Mount Everest. Uh, Ed Visters was a guy who's we brought into our dressing room to, to kind of – Give us some sort of guidance and give us some inspiration. And he's the guy who climbed. He's climbed all 14 summits over 8,000 uh, meters without oxygen. First American, only American, I think, to do it. And he always said, "Listen, like when you cl- when you set out to climb a mountain like Everest, the goal is to summit, right?" But, you know, you got to go up and down, up to the first camp, down to base, up to second, down to first. You're you're constantly going up and down, up and down as a team to get climatized, to get supplies up and down. And then when you get to the summit, you get to the the last base camp, the third, there's only like two or three people that actually get to make the climb to the summit. And sometimes you can prepare, you can do everything right. And you're like literally 300 meters from the summit and you can see it right there. But the weather's coming in and they're like, you guys have to turn around or you're going to die. So you just turn around and all those, like that year, that, you know, three months of climbing and that year of preparation all go down the tube and you don't, you don't summit. And that's, there's nothing you can do about it. But he says like, it's not so much about the summit. It's about enjoying the climb and that 2011 run and everything that led up to it, man, we enjoyed it all. It was a great run. The celebrations were amazing when we won in overtime and in the finals, you know, game seven against Chicago, so I, I'm pretty grateful just that we we were able to have that climb.
0: How
1: about you? And then what was the shift like going to Anaheim? Right? I mean, it was probably hard to leave Vancouver, given everything that you'd invested there. But it, things ended up working out pretty well for you after the move. I mean, it's been a place that's been so important in your the rest of your journey.
2: Yeah. Also, well, back to your earlier question, like talk about a different different organization. So I'm used to Winnipeg. I'm used to Vancouver, and then boom, down to down to Anaheim, where things are done a little bit differently the the answer that i got uh, pretty quickly and pretty often when i when i would ask like why do we do this they're like well that's the way we've always done it <laughs> so i'm like oh okay this is this is going to be great <laughs> well <laughs> things probably have to change a little bit that's not a good enough fan so anyways it, it was a bit of an adjustment but uh, one that we made you know an adjustment all over the place adjustment with with families and kids not allowed in the dressing rooms anymore and you know mm-hmm. wives very very distant from from the rest of the organization. it was just, there was a lot of things that were different. The weather's completely different. Now there's no snow, there's no rain. There's, there's just sun all day long, which is, which is awesome. I really enjoyed that part, but um, new team, it was a veteran team. It was expected to win. We had a really bad uh, start my first year, like 10 games in, I think we're two and two and eight. And I remember Bruce Brojo came over to me in practice. He goes, uh, how do you think you're playing? <laughs> I go, well, like, probably like everybody else Bruce like I can be I can be better and he goes yeah he goes the way I look at it is we, we lost in the conference final last year and you know now we brought in you and Chris Stewart and uh, a couple other guys and now we're not doing so well so I look at it as you guys have to be better and I'm like oh okay so that was interesting I've never been blamed for an entire team losing but um, you know we, we had a couple really good teams there my second year in Anaheim we all I think we we probably should have won the Stanley Cup that year. I think we are we lost to Nashville in the conference final. We were as equipped as any team I ever played on. So, But I ended up staying down there. I love it down there. Made some really good friends. And, and like I said, hockey's growing, and I'm glad to be a part of that.
0: Yeah, I covered that series. That was a heck of a series. Um, Hey, uh, I wanted to get your take on this because Jets fans look at that 2015 first round series. and. The line in Winnipeg is always, you know, they, they led for, I don't know what it was, but they were in the lead for the majority of that series. And yet they got swept four straight by you guys. Um, I always liken it like this, like two guys are in a race and they go around the corner and they see the finish line. And you guys just, once you saw the finish line, you turned to the jets, you gave them a wink and you just had that extra kick to, to get down the line. Was that series as close as Jets fans make it out to be, or how did you guys perceive that 2015 Jets team you beat in the first round?
2: So, Weber, do you want to tell them or should I?
1: Yeah, I have bad news, Sean. Uh, Kevin only went to Anaheim <laughs> the year after that.
2: Oh,
0: gee. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sorry. So I, okay. I, uh, well,
2: I was playing my last year with Vancouver, and we were playing Calgary, and that was the, the, the introduction to Furland into the world so I was I was too busy in that first round getting run by Furland every shift but uh, that was (laughs) Kess's first year and I think Kess had a monster series against Winnipeg but I remember those guys talking about it the the following year thinking we we can't believe we swept the Jets like they were that was the start of when I remember Winnipeg was so good big strong tough fast and I think everybody around the league was kind of looking at that series like wow like I can't believe that the, the Jets actually got swept let alone like we can't believe they lost, but like get swept. I think that was a shocker to everyone. But if you ask Cass, he'll tell you he was the best one. That
1: they won. <laughs> he had a pretty important series, that's for sure. And Sean, my apologies, I totally blanked out when we were talking about this earlier. It's all right, uh, it's I all right. Doubled, I see, good TV. I see this what you've is done TV. here. <laughs> I see what you've
0: done here. It's okay. It's yeah.
1: Okay, we're 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 ganging up on you,
0: uh, Kevin. I, I mean, probably I, should have done my research. I probably should have gone and double checked that question before. I, I was, was just anyway. honestly just
1: about to text you uh, after looking at Hockey DB, but uh, anyways, uh, Kevin, how did you know it was the end? and you talked about the closure element. I mean, how tough was it to come to that decision? Because, I mean, even there were times that year when people kind of wondered if you might play again. And even there were some whispers, given what was going on around the Jets' defense core, that maybe you might kind of end up here at one point. Uh, what was it like to kind of go through that process and and kind of hang up the blades, I guess?
2: Well, I mean, I, it, it, was, it was difficult to know because... I physically I, I knew I could have still played and uh it was a matter of finding like the right fit that like I'm I'm a big family guy. I don't know like if how public that is. I'm I'm a pretty private guy personally, and but I'm a big family guy. And that means like everybody's a big family guy, but like I value being around my kids and my wife. Like I wanna be around them, I wanna be present. Being a professional hockey player, you're gone for half the time. And even when you are home, you're like your head's not always there. You're preoccupied. You're at the rink for six hours in a row. In a row, are you gonna be able to recover any from that question? Or like, I'm,
0: I'm just, I'm, I'm taking, I'm taking a battering in the chat room, and I can't stop uh, laughing at
2: the people taking uh, me to task. I can't see and the it, chats. I want to see them. Though. Those you, the, don't the to, you don't need. You don't need
0: to see it. It's nothing's being said. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my
2: my i'm a free agent and anaheim makes it clear they're not going to re-sign me and um i go to the market and in the summer my offers are like columbus and ottawa and detroit and, and a bunch of teams where my wife is not going right she's like we're staying in anaheim the kids are going to continue to go to school here if you're going to keep playing you're going to live in a hotel on your own and we'll make the best of it. I support you and I'm like thinking, okay, like that sounds like a blast for me, right? <laughs> like so anyways, didn't didn't commit to any of those teams and then the season starts and I'm like I'm just going to keep training and see if something closer or something better comes along. And uh and then the Spengler, I'm on the golf course, I get called by Sean Burke and he goes, "Do you want to come to the Spengler?" I'm like, "Perfect." So then I go to Everett, I train with them for a week and then I go to the Spengler Cup and after the Spengler, I would already kind of committed to Hockey Night in Canada, to work in the All Star Game in January, it was the end of January in San Jose, and they said, "If you're not playing, or you haven't signed with a team, will you work the All Star Game?" And I said, "You know, yeah, that'd be a great experience." So, anyways, uh, I get I get back from the Spengler, had a good Spengler, led the team in ice time every game, I have another few other conversations with teams, a bunch of teams overseas, and same thing. Do I want to live in Switzerland or live in Sweden or live in? Uh, russia by myself and play the last two months of the season right or you know do i come back to canada and to the u.s and try to find another spot so anyways lots going on there like you don't have a long enough podcast for me to explain every scenario but uh i ended up going to the all-star game and i'm staying in the fairmont uh, where all the players are staying and uh, my, my son and his buddy are running around asking for autographs for all the kids. And they, they're like in the restaurant, it was kind of closed. And my son comes back and he goes, dad, the guy in the restaurant just kicked us out because, and I go, what are you doing there? He goes, well, we're trying to get Blake Wheeler and, and Mark Scheifele's autograph. And I go, okay. Like there, I know Scheif's a buddy of mine. I play with him. I go, I'll come with you and I'll, don't worry. I'll, I'll figure it out. So I go, co- I go in there and they're having uh, a lunch just then with their wives and Chipper and Paul Maurice and um, Shy's parents were there, who I met in uh, the World Championships. So, kind of go over there, and I'm saying hi to them, and and Paul Maurice, we start talking, and he's like, "Well, what do you think about coming to Winnipeg?" And I'm like, "Yeah, like it sounds good. Like, let's talk." So, you know, the the main thing I told Paul Maurice, and I think I can kind of disclose this because he's moved on now, and and not not that any of it was bad, like just uh, just the transparency of it. He's like would you come to Winnipeg for our playoff run? And I said, yeah, the only thing I'll ask you or I'll tell you for me coming there is I don't care how much I play, I don't care what position you play me in, but I have to be in the lineup. If I'm going to move to Winnipeg and I'm going to live in a hotel for four months without my family, like you have to tell me if I'm healthy that I'll, I'll be in the lineup. And he said, okay, well, that's a conversation we have to have, and it's basically between you and Sammy Niku. And if we decide that you're the guy that's going to play over him, then we'll tell you and we'll bring you in. And, and, uh, I don't know how that conversation ever went, but, um, you know, never really circled back, which kind of tells me that they chose Sammy Nuku, which also tells me it probably wasn't a good decision. Cause I don't think he played too many more <laughs> games for the jets after that, but, uh, that's kind of the way it, it happens. So I think just a little bit of an interesting story for the fans, but I love Paul Maurice when I played for him for a short time, I love Chipper. I still talk with Chipper, that would have been a cool little way to, to end my career, though,
0: I think. That's good stuff. I hadn't heard that story before. Um, when you think back on your time in Winnipeg, uh, what stands out to you about Ken Weeb? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, Wiebe used to have hair. That's the one thing that I know a lot of people don't really uh, believe, but Weber used to have hair. But I just remember Weber always, you know, obviously has a passion for the game, but just very fair, very fair in all your, your articles and never really – malicious and never just you love the game you love winnipeg you love the team i think you're always you're great with the players and i can't say that for a lot of writers over the years There's a lot of you know scumbags in vancouver and anaheim i had to deal with and i always <laughs> loved love talking with weber and enjoyed reading all of his articles and uh one of the few one of the few guys that i still keep in contact with out of all the media guys there's there's not many right and and weber you're definitely one of them and Ronnie, I still don't know if I like you, but I'm starting to, <laughs> to figure it out. <laughs> thank, th- thank you for I'm the just kind kidding. words. <laughs> I did,
1: uh, look forward to hoping that we can get out and golf at Pelican Hill one day. But uh, just a quick one on the on the current uh, lot in life, Kevin. I mean, uh, obviously, you enjoy what you're doing. How did you know that you could show the personality? I mean, because you've known this from a, your time as a player. It's such a button down sport. Whereas now you're bringing humor to a panel. I mean, that was something that's kind of foreign in a lot of ways uh, when it comes down to it. A little bit of maybe Charles Barkley-esque kind of TNT flavor on the broadcast. How did you know that would work? And did anybody deter you from trying to be yourself on those panels?
2: Well, when you get teed up from these like granola interviews that or granola <laughs> monologues that Rennie does, and it's like, oh, the Ottawa Senators, yeah, yeah, yeah a couple of COVID cases, I've been uh, playing in 19 days, no uh, shit, Sean. So you got to kind of like bring a little bit of humor. No, but, um, you know, I think you guys know me pretty well. And uh, I think what you see on camera is, is who I am. So if you if you think I'm trying to make jokes too much, or you think I'm trying to be like, that's, you're wrong. Like that's who I am. Like uh, I think you guys can attest to that. I, I'm just myself. So whether people like it or not, uh, that's who I'm going to be. And, and so far, it be, seems like a lot of people enjoy enjoy the humor. That might be short lived, and that might go away. But that's just who I am. I, I chirp everybody. I chirp my mom. I chirp uh, my kids. I chirp the lady at the drive through. I chirp my baristas. That's just. In a good way, right? Like that's just who I am. I like to have fun. I think life's life's amazing. And if I'm not chirping you, I probably don't like you too much. So um, maybe that's an exception for Elliot. <laughs> but uh, from from the beginning, uh, I've I've really enjoyed the the crew. For it's like it's like a good team where you just enjoy coming to the rink every day. I enjoy, and I, I fly from LA to Toronto every weekend. And as soon as I get to the studio, I love it. I enjoy, like, working with, you know, David Amber and Elliot and Ron and Kelly. It's been, like, three years now of working with them, and I enjoy every second of it. But then, like, the people behind, like, the producers and, you know, Brian Spear and Kathy and, and everyone else that, Ed and Rob, everyone that has, you know, and Sean, you know who all these people are, and they're, they're great people to work with. I really enjoy it. So it makes showing my personality easy. Nobody's, I don't know about you, Renny, but I haven't really had that talk yet, like, tone her down i'm sure i'm sure it'll come but they're super encouraging of just do you and be yourself and you can say anything once so they always taught me <laughs> <laughs> so i'm was, like yeah okay i was i can i can apologize with the best of them though guys
0: right well I, to, to that point that you're making there like I, I i hey guys like ken and i we go to school to do what we do right we go get journalism degrees to do what we do and there's a lot of training that's involved in there i don't know what your training was to get into this afterwards. But the part you're talking about, about being you on camera, is one of the hardest things to do, especially in broadcast, is kind of get that out. But the other tricky part about it is we've all spent time in in <clears throat> in hockey dressing rooms, which can kind of not be a not-for-print kind of area. <laughs> and one of the things I've always been admired about the way that you do broadcast is you seem to have a real good understanding in live TV in the moment of how far you can go up to that line without crossing that line. That's not easy to do. How much thought do you put into doing that? And how much of it is just sometimes you starting the head in a direction and catching yourself in the moment before you go too far?
2: Well, the first part of your, your question there, I, I don't try to be you or Weaver. That's the thing. Like I don't try to be a polished journalist because I'm not. So I'm, I'm just, I'm myself. Like I don't, I make mistakes. I don't look at the right camera sometimes. Um, you know, I, I miss my cue, sometimes. The the camera comes on me, and you look all nice and polished, Sean, and you got your mic ready and you got your tie straight. And sometimes I'm like on my phone looking at stats, so I don't I don't try to be what I'm not. Right? I'm I'm a guy who played hockey, and you know, and I, and I I talk about it now. So um, I think that's the key is is knowing who you are and, and knowing who you aren't. So. I think that's maybe like it's fun to see me mess up and and make mistakes and and not look at the right camera, but um, I can't even remember the other part of your question. See, that's this is another real moment. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, but uh, getting getting to that line, I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah, getting to the line, I think, and and I've had my fair share of almost and and slept yeah. on, I remember like a couple weeks ago, I said under my breath, I said the F word under my breath, and then I kind of like covered it. And Elliot goes, did you just swear like, <laughs> right on air? And I'm like, no, like, what are you talking about? But I did. I know my brother, I'm like, ah. you know, like, when Kelly asked me a question, but um, I think coaching, coaching kids. And I have, I have a couple groups at my academy and one's uh, nine and 10 and 11 year olds. So I think you obviously can't swear around nine, 10 and 11 year olds. So I think learning how to, to be passionate and talk and instruct and not let out an F-bomb. You know, I probably learned that a little bit from the high school kids that I coach and my son's team. Those kids probably swear more than anyone I know. So, uh, not so much from that group, but I mean, you you just have to make sure that you're you're saying the right things. And sometimes you take a pause here or there if you, if you think you're going down that that line. It's 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 tough. Like when you're reacting though, and you're you're getting into like jostling battles with somebody else on the panel, and you're going back. And those are the tough ones when you're when you're rehearsed and you know, like okay, I'm going to talk about. Thomas shabbat or I'm going to talk about Austin Matthews. Like it's easy because you're prepared that way, but it's when you go back and forth and you react in somebody else's comments where the the human nature and and the hockey dressing room mentality comes out, where you could, you know, it's it's very uncommon or it's not uncommon to look around the dressing room and be like "f you" to somebody chirping you, but you obviously can't say that on TV.
0: Yeah,
1: Kevin, the writer in me has to ask: uh, you have a famous writer in your home. Uh, what was it like to see Katie go through the writing process and? Did you have any input uh, in any of her, in her, in her book?
2: No, not at A lot of input. The only input I had was a little bit with the cover, which she hates. So I obviously <laughs> didn't do, do a good job there. I think there's a wine stain on the cover, which was my idea. And, and, but now she wants to change it, but she's got uh, another book and in, in publishing with the editor and she's got another one. She's, she's writing. Um, she's, I'm so proud of her, but she's one of those people that takes credit for nothing. Like takes, it's like, she like she won uh, the the Canadian Book Club Award with her first book. It's her second one's even better. And if you say like if I call her a writer to somebody when I'm introducing her, she's like I didn't even write a real book. Like stop it. Like so if you're looking for humility in the family, like look her way because she's she's got all of it. But uh, she she's amazing, and I, I'm super glad that my both my kids have, have taken after her. Uh, she's she's the brains of the family. She's the humility of the family. She's. Uh, She's the one that keeps the thing going.
0: Kevin, you say you love to bust balls. Who is your favorite teammate whose balls you love to bust? And who is your favorite opponent you like to get under their skin?
2: You know who I like to get were were the guys who wouldn't fire back, like the Twins, right? Like the Twins were so nice. I was probably the only guy in the history of the world that chirped Daniel Sedin. Like nobody else chirped Daniel Sedin except for me because – and not in a malicious way, just, just in a fun way, because when I chirped Daniel Sedin, you should see the look and everybody in the dressing room, like, Oh my God, he just chirped Daniel. Like Daniel's the nicest guy. Like he never says anything about anyone and I'm making fun of him, not making fun of him, but I'm, I won't even tell you what I used to say about him, but I'm, you know, I, I just think like Luongo, Luongo did not like to be chirped. So when I chirped him, it was, you know, it got, it got a reaction out of out of the dressing room Um on, on the ice. Oh, man, there's this guy named Rob Scuderi, and I don't know. I think he probably ended up getting into my grill more than I got into his, but uh, I remember I threw a couple of good comments at him just skating by their bench because he was all over me all the time. He's like, oh, the sheriff, the sheriff's in town. Hey, sheriff, who are you going to arrest tonight? And he was always all over me, so I, I would make sure I had something good, and I'd skate by their bench, and I'd say something to him in front of all of his teammates. So there's a couple guys throughout there's uh, Adam Burrish was another guy who we – Probably don't even remember who he is, but he played in the NHL for Chicago. <laughs> See, like I still can't remember, remember. I remember. I, I know you do. I still. I want to throw, <laughs> throw digs at. Vern Fiddler was a guy who I had a history with, and it's funny because we, our kids are both those sevens, and we cross paths now coaching. And he's all—he's a great guy, and we, we, you know, I have good talks with him now. But we just were we relentless at each other on the ice over and over again.
1: Somebody mentioned okay. that to me. There was a mockery, right? He didn't he. Tell us, tell the story. There, somebody mentioned sent me a note on Twitter saying, "Ask Kevin about this." Did he mocked you or something on the ice, or what? What was? Yeah, that? you
2: can you can search it on YouTube. So he he we went back and forth. We played against each other in the minors, played against each other in the NHL. But uh, I'd always ask him to fight, and he'd say no, and it just <laughs> drove me nuts. And then he would mock me, and apparently I did a face all the time on the ice, like a like a mean tough face, and where I went like this in my eyebrows. And so he started doing it the one face off in Dallas. And and the other line came on. Like, he wasn't even supposed to be on the ice, but he wouldn't leave the ice. And he's skating around, like, doing this face. And it was such a, like, a distraction. Like, everybody just stopped. Referees both teams included and just watched him and they thought he was having like a seizure or something he was skating around <laughs> making my face and elaine vino the camera was yeah. on him he yeah. just started, started dying laughing dying, <laughs> dying <laughs> laughing. he thought it was the funniest thing ever and then he like he apologized to me after the game and i'm like i don't care like so it's it's just a good comical moment and he he says he still he says he lives in Kelowna now and he goes to the grocery store today and he still gets people that come up to him and ask him about like, do the BXA face, do the BXA face. <laughs> so a stupid face. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Kevin, I got to say, uh, you said it earlier, you bust balls of the people you like. Uh, I think that means that the Kenny and Rennie show is in pretty good standing in your books because you absolutely roasted us here today, <laughs> which our chat room loves because they love to spend their time doing that. Uh, You gave them plenty of reason to do it. You were the great white whale, the guy we were constantly trying to get on the show, and I think that our audience can see why. It was absolutely phenomenal catching up with you. We really appreciate your time. Uh, Had a ton of fun hanging out with you the last hour. Thanks for giving us your time. And uh, if you ever want to join us for one of our post game shows where we just get on and we kind of freestyle it with the audience and talk about the Jets. If you've ever watched a Jets game or something like that, and you want to come on, the audience is begging you to come on because they see enough of Ken and I as it is. So the open invitation, anytime you want to come join the Kenny and Renny show, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Well, guys, I haven't done a podcast in over a year. I think it's been more than a year, but like I said, Weber and I have been talking back and forth, back and forth, and we spent some time and, respect both you guys a ton. So that's, that's the only reason I'm on this. Obviously you do a great job, but really enjoyed the, the last hour talking with you guys as well. It's been fun and won't say no to the future. We'll, we'll see if we can make something work again.
0: Excellent. Stuff. Kevin. Thanks man. Thank, Thank you, you so it. much, Kevin. Well, that was phenomenal. Ton of fun. You know what story we didn't get to was the the suit story. Should you tell that one before you go? <laughs>
1: Well, back in the Moose days, uh, I think I want to say it was in Chicago, but there were two places that Kevin mentioned the low, the low salaries, uh, the 35,000. In my early years, I wasn't making a whole lot of money over at the, (laughs) excuse me, at the Winnipeg Sun. So the players would go in, in Cleveland to a Hugo boss. I never bought a suit from the Hugo boss, but there was a tailor near Chicago where they would do three for one deals. And, uh, on this one, I, I went with a few of the players on one of these uh, occasions, and of the three suits, Kevin gave me the extra one, and in vintage Kevin BX of fashion said, you need this more than I do. So <laughs> my wardrobe needed the improvement more, so I I think we split it 50-50, but he gave me uh, the extra suit. So uh, just another one of those great examples of uh, of Kevin's generosity, not only with his time, but... Uh, as an individual uh, as we mentioned I mean just a great person to be around uh it's great to see what he's doing now and like you said we thank him for his time he's like i said he's one of those guys alex burrows was the same way um they always got back to you right sometimes players in the minors they go on to their next uh, next part of life and kind of leave that chapter behind but these guys as you can see uh Winnipeg means a lot to them. And um, you know Kevin's just one of the best human beings I've ever uh, had the privilege of knowing. And uh, we thank him for being on with us and we cont- continue to wish him uh, great success and all, also his family. I mean, this is a guy who loves his family and uh, has really done a nice job on so many fronts.
0: Well, I'm going to tell you this from a Sportsnet perspective. Uh, you can see Kevin BX. I think anyone that you would ever talk to him throughout his hockey career would have sang his praises as a teammate the kind of guy who goes to battle for his teammates, but also does what he can to bring people in and make people feel part of the team. I think he's been absolutely phenomenal with that at Sportsnet. You heard him talk about us uh, getting together and hanging out during the uh the cup final in Montreal. Uh, you know, you He talked about Ron and we, you know, probably should have got to that, although we've been going for an hour. Uh, But just hanging out with that crew. He's one of those guys you can tell. It's a fun night if you're out with Kevin Biexa, and everyone at that table gets drawn into it and made feel a part of it. Uh, He's a natural teammate, natural leader. And what a fun guy to have on. That was, uh, I don't know, this may be, I mean, this, this is why we love these shows, Ken. We do it time and time again we always say this, and we go out grinding, trying to find guests for the shows, and we're thinking, oh, man, should we keep doing this? And then we get into these shows, and we have an absolute time of our life doing it. So uh, phenomenal job with him. One last thing before we go. We're going to have our post-game show tonight after a huge game. Uh, uh, the Jets, uh, let's call it a measuring stick game, even though sure. they're out of the playoffs right now. Measuring stick game against the Colorado Avalanche, the team I have picked to go to the Stanley Cup final from the West. Uh, Cole Perfetti draws into the lineup. Chance for CJ Cease to maybe get in the lineup, depending on how things go with Stastny and uh, with Jansen Harkins and uh, Dylan Demel in the COVID protocol. Nate, and Bo- Nate Beaulieu is coming in uh, on the third line there. So interesting game. We're going to get to that tonight, but want to say one last thing and we'll bring it up on the screen here. We've been really, really happy with our t-shirt sales out there really happy that you guys have been kicking in there. I know the website was down for a little bit earlier on today. Uh, We got that taken care of and fixed. Um, We're trying, we were doing pre orders until midnight tonight. Uh, and we've been getting really, really good reviews from the people at Sportsnet, at the Sportsnet store, Uh, but we'd like to push some more, so if you're interested, uh, we'd love to suit you up in some really good shirts. Uh, I'm wearing one of them right now, the Sean's headband shirt. We love these things. We love that you've been supporting us, if you'd uh, consider doing it. Uh, Again, uh, pre-order's going on until uh, midnight tonight, so if you'd love to jump in and uh, buy one of those, we would be extremely appreciative of that. Just go to the Sportsnet store, uh, and you'll be to find it there's two collections there steve dangles and ours so outside of toronto we're the only sportsnet personalities with a clothing line ken that's a uh, work that you and i worked on and the art that our chat room worked on because some of our designs come exactly from that i love this one it's that was so, unplanned but it was pretty yeah. funny T will T will absolutely slaughtered me as did a number of people (laughs) after me getting that wrong. And I'll say this, I've prided myself in this show on the number of times that I've had elicited a, that's a good question from our guests over the past year of doing this. I've had a, I I don't think a show has gone by that I haven't got one of those. But I can tell you this chat room, they don't let you sleep here, Kenny. It's what have you done for me lately? And that was a big boo-boo by me. I'm going to have to wear that. And I'm guessing I'm still going to hear about it in the chat room tonight. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that.
1: I I honestly, I... as soon as i said i turned i know what you did
0: you set I, me up you set oh, me yeah. up i know
1: <laughs> I, I was like oh my god i asked i asked kevin about anaheim i know sean is going to follow up i went and clicked on hockey db i'm like oh my god no he was still in vancouver
0: yeah yeah oh well what are you gonna do uh, anyways hey awesome Shot stuff that was us so honest funny. they kept us honest here the receipts. tonight I they appreciate got the receipts. That. They got the receipts. I love that they do that. Keep being you, chat room, because you rock it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to Kevin Bieksa for joining us. That was a ton of fun. Ken, awesome job as usual. We can't wait to see you later on tonight after that Jets game. Hope to see you all there.